everybody. I'm Mary Grothy, CEO of Sales BQ. Welcome to this episode of the Quota Pressure Podcast. I decided to uh, go over the pond, as they say, for our guest today. We have the EMEA Sales Director at Natterbox, Ian Moyes, on our podcast today. And we're psyched that he's here to bring us a new perspective from a sales leadership role, looking at many facets of the trends and predictions that he's seen in 2020 as he's working with sales teams. We're going to dig in from a prospecting standpoint and several other areas. So uh, buckle up, be along for the ride. Ian, welcome to our podcast. Hi, Mary. Thank you for having me on. And interesting to see how we're going to fit that into a short time, right? So we're going to be punchy. Well, we are. And the good news is I'm usually the one that does all the talking 24 hours a day. So I love these podcasts when I actually get to ask a good question and put my feet up and kick back and listen to the expert talk about it. So I would love for you to give our audience just a little background on yourself. It always helps when we know who you are and what your experience has been, gives a little credibility in what you're saying. So give us that brief overview of your experience to this point. Sure. Very quickly, started inside sales, was promoted to field sales, worked in channel for many years, promoted up through managing people, managing leading channel. Uh, So I'd say managing initially and then learning to lead. Um, And the last 13 years, I've been in the cloud computing sector leading direct sales teams so i've done channel direct inside sales field sales direct so i've got a good feel hopefully for the different pieces i'm involved with a number of associations around sales association professional sales institute of sales management etc speak at a lot of events um and i think the big thing out of all of that um, I'm still learning. I'm still, you know, I'm not, I always position I'm not baked. And I, we just had some coaching from someone and new techniques. And it was like, never come across any of that. Didn't know what I didn't know. And I think that's one of the key things. That's the key thing to take away first, I think, is it doesn't matter how long you've been doing this. You can learn even from the junior new salespeople that come in, in the way they approach things. There's something to learn. I love that you have an open mind about it because it's super easy when you get to a stage in your career where you feel like you've done so much, you've got the track record to prove it, you know everything, and it's hard to let new information in. So I love your approach to that, that you're having an open mind, and I couldn't agree more. I love watching the next generation of salespeople come in and teach me things I didn't even know were possible in sales. It's such a privilege to be in that coach role and to see what they're doing. So I couldn't agree with you more on that. So you've had quite the journey to get to this point. Congratulations on that track record of success. It's fun that you've done all those different roles. Because of that, you're going to be a sharper sales leader because you have perspective. You have a frame of mind. What's going to be extremely helpful in this uh, role that you're in now. So let's talk about something that really stood out to me that you're passionate about is the world of social selling. You've got some opinions about this. Share Mm -hmm. those opinions. Talk to us about what's working, what's not. And I'd love for you to lean into how this relates to telemarketing and actually using the phone and where you've seen that shift. Sure. So a number of things. Social selling is the wrong name for it, but it's catchy. That's why it's cool. And it misleads people, right? So I, I talk to people often and they'll say, oh, we couldn't sell our product over social media or the web. That's not what social selling is about, but that's what it sounds like. So that's the first thing. So, you know, you'd, normally you'd call it something like um, using social media to get an engagement with someone that turns into a real world conversation. Something like, but it doesn't catch, right? So it's called social <laughs> selling. But, that, you know, it's about using new technologies and methodologies to supplement traditional selling skills and approaches. It doesn't replace 
picking up the phone. That's the first thing I get. Oh, I don't mind people um, playing around on social media all day and not selling. Okay, if you can pick up the phone and get through to the target that you want to get through to, let's say it's a C-level exec and do it, do it. It's the quickest way and you've got the conversation you wanted. But the question is, if you can't, what do you do? And invariably what I see businesses still doing is playing the numbers game of, uh, we'll keep trying. Uh, or send five emails, we'll send the next email that says, did you see my last email? Then we'll send an email, in-mail connection, and they might think I'm valuable to connect, and I connect, and then I'll immediately send them a message with a sales pitch in it. All of the bad practices are going on right now, day in, day out. And I see, I see people trying to sell me social selling courses. Really? So you haven't, you failed the first bit, you didn't even do any research which is part of social selling, to identify I'm not a prospect because I teach people on social selling. How, how many, and they'll keep, did you read the last message about it? You might have missed it. You're wasting your own time more and putting the barrier up more. So my, my thought on this is, firstly, if you're going to keep calling someone and use the old technique, which a lot of sales leaders do, which is the numbers game, of my sales people have to call 70 a day and then they'll call them next, repeat calls every two days. If you've called me nine times and I see that number come up and I've got one voicemail where I know who it is or I've looked the number up online, guess what happens when this rings the next time? I know it's you. So now I'm going, oh, it's that recruiter. Oh, it's that company trying to sell me SEO or whatever. Because I know it's you now. Now I'm purposely filtering you out. You're never going to get through because you kept trying so hard. The same method. And you've and I've it's assumed reason you're trying to get to me. So we've got to be smarter about this and engaging. So where social selling fits is if you can get hold of someone, it gives you a backup plan, right? It, it's a way of nurturing, but it is slow. This is the problem. It isn't an instant gratification. And that's where people are getting this wrong. They're immediately trying to connect someone. Someone accepts the connection. They believe that's an invite then to, right, I've now got a rapport with them. Like I've spoken or met with them. I can just go straight. You can't. You, you haven't even started. So let me give you an extreme example very quickly. Um, if there's someone you want to connect with, I'll look for them. Let's say it's a, a CIO in an organization. I'll look at, firstly, I do what's called being a bit Sherlock. Right? It's looking for the clues and looking for, is there any low-hanging fruit that tells me? Most people in Estrada, they'll quickly glance at the profile, maybe see if I've got a joint connection where they work, that's it, bang, in I go. So what I'm looking for is, do they have a, do they have a Twitter account? Mm -hmm. Is it linked? If not, I'll go and try and find it. What do they, if they do, what do they tweet about? When, if they haven't tweeted in three years, irrelevant. If they tweet regularly, is it about something that I've got context for? Right. If, it's, if they're tweeting about cycling and you are proficient, it's the most passion, right, you know you've now got a connection, it's how do you relate that connection. You don't email them, oh, I'm into cycling, but you might like their post, right? You might share it, um, or you might share a bit of content or a blog you wrote on cycling, or a photo. You might share something and tag them in, or reply to something where they posted there's this new product out and, and put a comment up. Oh yeah, one of my friends used that and said it wasn't this good, whatever. It's about trying to get rapport and engagement that's relative and genuine. If you're not into cycling, don't pretend you are and try and do that, right? So you've got to be genuine. But it's I've done this with, with big book authors, best-selling book authors in the sales environment, where genuinely, it's a passion, right? So I like their, some of their content, I shared and engaged with it because it fits. And guess what? Over time, I know they follow me back. Oh, they've shared one of my posts, one of my blogs. And then I get an outreach. Um, oh, well, I'm coming to the UK to speak. We, we, we seem to engage a lot. Um, you're not around to meet, are you? 
So I've got to meet lots of very important people through a genuine connection, but it took some time. And the perfect for me is where they invite you to connect or they invite you to meet. I didn't do anything. They, they saw value in that connection and that invite, right? So I've earned that right. But it's a slowly, slowly approach. It doesn't work overnight. On the other hand, I've had a few where I've got into major organizations at CIO global level, multi-billion dollar companies very, very quickly from cold because I did that research like Sherlock rather than Lestrade, right? The example I was give is if Lestrade would come in a room, see three clues and say, I've already decided this is how the murderer died. Sherlock will come in and see 20 other things because his eyes are more open and he'll dig and look for connections and links and, and you need to be Sherlock on social. The clues often are there. So I'll find, I'll look for, have, is this CIO written any articles? Have they been published? What's their agenda? What, do they speak at events? Is there, what, what, the more I know, the more I can, and I found on a particular one, enough information about the agenda of where they were taking the business and the transformation they did in companies to tie in specifically to what I wanted to talk about that I sent one email. But boy, did it take me a lot of planning and research and get it together. And, and I got a response, which was, Really interesting, my PA will be in touch, love to talk. And when we had that meeting, the first thing that conversation opened with, he sat down in front of us and said, you've done well, I don't meet anyone. Now, it doesn't always work that quick, but that's what social selling's about. It's about taking a social media engagement where I can't start with a direct engagement and leveraging it through to a real-world engagement when social media has then done its job. So then you go back into your normal sales skills of rapport, meeting them, qualification, everything else. You're back where you, it fits the first part of the sale. If you can't get hold of someone and it's a cold call and it's blocked, what other option do you have? Just keep doing the stuff that isn't working and more of it, in which case they block it more or do something different. And most people aren't doing it. So guess what? If you do it and you work smart and you don't abuse that fact with going straight in with I want to meet you, you can make this work and it works beautifully. I love what you walk through. I couldn't agree with it more. I firmly believe that doing this type of research, we call it profiling before prospecting, but not a lot of reps can understand and execute on what you just walked through. We teach this methodology through SalesBQ and we talk about, I'll pull up a LinkedIn profile. I'll pull up a company website, Twitter handles, and I'll, walk people through and show them how to pull these bits and pieces of information and use that, put it in your melting pot, stir it around, get a bunch of information and then pull out a custom created message. Like you said, for that in mail. And it seems to be a very difficult concept for salespeople to understand. And we teach classes on this every single month. And we also work with teams and sit down with them and take their actual prospects and walk through. And what I've noticed is of all the things that we teach and coach and train on, this is an area that we're not seeing a huge adoption. And I see a lot of reps get <coughs> stuck. They pull out the information and then they say, so then how do I write the message? So then what would be relevant to them? So what words should I use? And so I'm just curious from your perspective or, as you've or trained if I may reps. Marry, pick up the phone. <laughs> what you've got now is valuable insight, right, of how it's not a cold call necessarily now. If you know something where you've got relevance, rather than just going in, I'm trying to, I want to understand if you've got a need for this. You know, if you know they've got particular challenges or they've just recruited 
a customer new customer experience leader, well, does that not tell you something that they're trying to improve their customer experience? Look in their board report, you know, do, do the homework. And if it talks in there from their CEO about this year, we want to move our NPS score from this to this. Mm-hmm. That's on their agenda. Well, if, I'm, if I can improve customer experience, I've got an agenda to call and say, you know, I've read your CEO's report. Blah, blah, blah. So it's, there's a reason I'm calling. I want to speak to him about how you're going to achieve your CEO's objective and NPS inquiry. It's very specific now, as opposed to, I want to just talk to you about what you're doing about customer experience. You can so I love what you, I, I love how you broke it down. And that makes sense. And so I hope the listeners hear that. You don't have to overcomplicate this. You find one thing. Find one little area that looks like a key focus for them that aligns with the problems that you solve for your customers relating to what you sell. Find one key area that's going to be relevant on both sides of the conversation so that you have the point of commonality. And that's what I think the advice needs to be is it's I've watched so many people overcomplicate it. I watch when they're doing profiling that they'll swim in the details for far too long. When we introduce the concept of profiling before prospecting, some reps who are more analytical will get analysis paralysis and they'll be looking at social handles and digging through articles that they've written yeah. in their profile and whatnot for an hour. And, and that's really not what we need to do because if it took us that amount of time before we even did a single reach out, we'd never have anything in our pipeline. So it has to be meaningful time spent. It should be brief time spent to get one talking point. And sure, reviewing and identifying three or four others will bode well for you as you get the conversation and expand. So you're not just this one trick pony of, oh, I just had this one thing and now crap, what do I do? And I go into my terrible old value prop about the year my company was founded and our products and services and the awards that we've won that nobody cares about because the prospect just cares about what's in it for them. So this well, is the a really great prospect cares about them, right? And if they've posted on, if anything they've put on social media, they've done so consciously that is in the public domain. Mm-hmm. Right? It. So if it's not hidden. It's yep. not wrong to have, I get people say, well, I don't, it feels like I'm, I'm intruding, having a look. Really? They posted it. They chose consciously to do it, didn't accidentally jump off. You know, they weren't talking and Alexa read it out and posted it for them. They, they consciously went and hit a post button and they also let their profile be open. So if they've put something on LinkedIn or Twitter, they put it out there for a reason. Look, look, I'm going to tell you something. They haven't chosen who's listening. You have every right to listen and to observe and, and I've gone into meetings where even before I go to a meeting, I'll always relook at things and have a quick look and refresh with them. And I've gone in and opened the conversation with, for example, I noticed you two guys have worked together three times before. Who came here for, you know, who's following who? And straight away, there's a joke in the room of, oh my God, you've done your homework. Straight away, no one else has thought to do. And it was only because I saw they've worked in the same company three different times at three. What an obvious conversation to have. It's beautiful. And you're right. It always goes off so well. I love hearing that feedback. Well, you did your homework. Well, you definitely researched this. I mean, when they understand that you're in it and you're invested and you care about the quality of the conversation and building that relationship and that potential outcome, I really feel like you had mentioned, hey, after you do all this engagement on social platforms in order to get the meeting, you still have to follow the steps of the process. Says, and one of those steps you mentioned was rapport. And I also yeah. feel like this is the new rapport building because before we didn't have access and a glimpse into people's lives. We had to do that old method where we walked in their office and we looked at 
their degree up on the wall. Yeah. So we knew where they went to college. We looked at pictures of their family on the desk. We made an assumption if they were neat or tidy, what their personality style might be. While we walk through the hallways, we're trying to find anything that we can talk about so that we can build rapport immediately on the spot. You don't have to do that anymore. I mean, you can, but you don't have to because you can talk about something so much deeper and richer and something that really gets to yeah. them because you took the time to digest what they're putting out in public. And content. the thing you've got to assume is that they may do it in reverse. And that's why, and that's the personal brand piece, why you better make sure you look how you expect them to judge you. Ooh. Because they're going to look back. I see so many times I look at profiles and then you look in the views of people who viewed you and they viewed you back. That's right. Expand more on that. Well, you know, I see so many times people have, particularly when salespeople come to interview, right? This is, this, this is the easy gotcha. There's your CV that you print out. That will go away at some point. Um, and I always look at the LinkedIn and get both. And they don't correlate. So one of them's wrong. You know, how's that work? And you ask them that question. They go, oh, is my LinkedIn wrong, is it? They've never looked. They don't, or you pick out something from their LinkedIn profile and they seem unfamiliar with it because the last time they touched it is when they set it up. You know, this is something to cultivate. It's like a garden. You plant the seeds and stuff, but you don't then go away for three months, come back and hope something's happened. You know, you water the garden, you mow the grass, etc. It doesn't stay looking nice. So, you know, with LinkedIn, it's a constant, you know, set your profile up, get it good in the first place but then nurture it. I always look at what other people have done. Uh, I see little tweaks and think, oh, well, that's interesting. I'll plagiarize that. I can use that. You know, what the picture you used is. How many people have made a, you know, they've typically what people do is they choose a picture and they think, I look okay in that. They make their own judgment or they might ask a partner or a friend and on it goes. How many have tested it? So I've tested mine. Not because someone told me to, because I accidentally, along the journey of learning, found something and went, oh, I'll try that. And there's a site called photofeeler.com. It's free. You rate other people and you earn some points. So it's click, 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 click. Now you've got points. You can use them for your, your rating. Put your picture on and you choose professional or personal. Professional and you get rated on things such as um, trustworthiness, um, seniority, but judged only on the picture. And it shows it to other people and they vote on those different criteria. And you get the results, right? So you find out, does that picture say, what does that picture send to people who know nothing about me as a first impression? There's no context, there's no name, title, etc. Now, I, if you look at my picture today, there's a picture of me um, to looking in one particular direction, I think that way or whatever, with glasses on. When I first tested it, and when I train people on this, I show the actual results from the different pictures. It's the same picture without glasses, got me a medium, mediocre result. I then put the same picture on with glasses because they'd done multiple shots and it went up. Six months later, something made me twig and I flipped the same photo to face the other direction. It went up again. That's why the photo that I use today is looking in a particular direction with glasses. How does that work? So if I put that picture on, not very average trustworthiness, not very senior. That suddenly they rocketed up. But I, I couldn't decide that. And you can't ask someone that knows you to decide that because they've got a bias before you even start. 
photofeeler.com. Is that what it was? Or what was photofeeler.com? Yeah, that's absolutely incredible. It's amazing how humans pass judgment immediately. And on LinkedIn, it's terrible because if you're in sales or business development of any kind, you already have an X on you, right? People don't want to connect with salespeople. There are so many people that have trashed the platform of LinkedIn with spamming and not being personal and becoming very annoying, connecting and pitching. It's over the top. In fact, there's this new thing happening on LinkedIn that it's driving me bonkers is it's a connect and a pitch. And then two days later, there's a follow-up message of, did you see my other message? Hey, I had, you know, I didn't hear back from you. Did you get this? And yeah, what makes me those. so mad. And I, I know that people do that via email, but what I can't stand about it in my LinkedIn inbox is I run a company and I have a, a decent LinkedIn presence as an influencer. And sometimes I get inbound leads in my inbox on LinkedIn, people wanting to have a conversation about what we do. And I get so many spam solicitation, sales, pitching, LinkedIn messages, that it's a terrible activity for me to have to go through it. And so then when I see somebody who has not earned the opportunity to pitch at me at all, and then they want to pop it up in my inbox again, I, yeah. I take it so defensively and accusatory of, no, I'm not. Yeah, I got your message and I'm not responding to it because it was terrible yeah. and you didn't do and your you, research. And, and, you, and, and no next time you say it, next time to my point, next time you say it, you're already, you don't, you're, you're one word in and you're already blocking it mentally because you know who it's from. Yeah. Um, and I think at fault for this is sales leadership. Ooh, tell me more about that. Right, because... There's a mantra out there that sales is a numbers game, right? And it's taken too literally. So I see this all the time. So in, in, in our context world, I mean, we, we sell a cloud telephony product that integrates with Salesforce, that improves customer experience and helps you become more productive for your, your team, right? Sales, service, et cetera. And the question we often get from people on the sales side of a business, is, well, you know, how, how can this help me? What I'm trying to achieve is how can this help me um, I want to increase this, this, the sales through the, the, the activity. So, um, you know, the, I've got them doing 70 calls a day today, but how, can this help me do 90 calls a day? Right. You're shuffling the chairs on the Titanic because I ask them, why do you need to do 90 calls? And I know the answer. And what you get them to is, what's your ratio of when you connect with someone to getting it into a prospect or a conversion? And you've worked that out that for every, for example, 10 calls we connect, we get one conversion. But we've worked out it takes, it used to take 70 calls to get 10 connects. Now it takes 90. Therefore, we need to do 90. And my answer is, hang on a second. What you're telling me is you want more conversions. And you're telling me the answer's already decided that you're going to do the same method you're doing today. Therefore, you're taking correlation to causation. What if I said you could do things differently and get two conversions. Oh, yeah, please. But you do less calls. What? Straight away, people have already told you the answer because they've already got the model and they're going to keep doing the same model. What if you disrupt the model and do something different in a different way? So we helped one customer. In fact, a US customer came to us and said that their key objective was we want to increase the connects we get with customers, prospects, where we actually have a meaningful conversation where they pick up and we speak to them by 30%. So 
So we configured something for them and they tested it. And in two weeks, they came back. We couldn't control the result, right? It's going to be what it's going to be. And they said, yeah, we've got a result. It's 29.6.7%. It's good enough. We'll buy. And they bought. All, forget all the other wondrous things we can do. That alone, the impact it had. Because they didn't have to do five times as many calls. They just, that, what they wanted, they asked the right question. We want to increase the connects. Then it's down to the expertise of the salespeople on the phone and the skill. But we've got the connection. Don't, it's not about doing more dials activity. And the same with, you know, what we were talking about, if it's emails or emails, if a sales leader is telling his team, I, we need to do this, this is the activity we need. I need lots of activity. You're all busy. Oh my God, we did 400 emails this week. We did this. Great. Feels like we achieved something. It's the outcome you want, not the activity. It's productivity. And productivity does not directly correlate with activity. Are you doing the, the, enough of the right thing, not just enough of something? And that's the problem of the sales is a numbers game. People just do the, we've got to do more calls. I only do 20 meetings a week. Okay, why? Because we know that we only close one sale out of every five meetings. Okay, how do we improve that? that is that a sales selling skill? Is it something we're talking to the wrong customer persona? But no, the answer immediately is just do more of what we're doing. Yes, because that will correlate with this. Well, there's a point where that breaks. What happens mm -hmm. when you, it's, it gets harder and you need to do 200 calls a day per rep? Or you have to do 50 calls a, meetings a week. It, what happens when you go past the point of impossibility? Because that's the, the trajectory you're on with the method you're using. And that's why, that, that's why I think we see that. Sales leaders need to step in and go, right, it's not just about activity. It's about the right activity I want a sales rep who can tell me I can do one meeting a year and hit my number. Now that's the extreme panacea, right? How would you, how do you do that? But what I don't want is a rep says I have to do 50 million calls a year to hit my number. It's how far do you move along the line to be efficient? That ideally you want, I could make 10 calls and I make 10 meetings and I make 10 sales. That's the perfection. How close can you get to the, the, the you know, the panacea metric and how do I do that? And that isn't just about doing more of it. It's about adjusting. Is it the coaching of the salespeople? Is it the sales methodology you're using? Is it you're approaching the wrong buyer persona? Is there a particular vertical where you have more success where actually put the effort into where we get more success and don't go to the hard part? There's so many things and it depends on your product service, your market dynamic, your country. But don't just go, it's activity. And I still see so many people and I interview salespeople who go, that's the environment they've come from. That's why they're looking for a job because it, it doesn't incite um, yearning to come to work. It doesn't make you passionate about it. You, you just end up being the hamster in the wheel. Agreed. I think that that is phenomenal sales leadership advice that it's time to look at the numbers a little bit differently and you may challenge your model. It's about quality. It's about sanity in the role as well. If we're just making this a numbers game and we're increasing dials and activity metrics over and over again, I agree with you 100%. We're going to reach a point of burnout and impossibility. And then what do you do? Use 2020 as your hindsight, right? Year of yep. looking at the metrics and saying, could we be doing better? And I love building out those models with those KPIs and saying, what if we increase our conversion rate to quality conversations or discovery meetings set, whatever that initial step is. What if we did fewer calls to get that? What if our close rate was higher? What if our average revenue per sale was higher and we were better in the sales conversation of not discounting? There's so many different levers that you can pull 
in order to change the outcome. And I think what you're saying here is take a, take a moment to challenge the model and figure out if there isn't more sanity that you can bring into the situation. So I think that's great. A great analogy, Mary, to, to, to compound that and summarise that is if you look at the British cycling team, there's the story about marginal gains and Dave Brailsford, et cetera, <laughs> people can look up on the internet. But if he'd come in, he, you know, he changed the performance, I'm not into sports, but he changed the performance of that to a world-class win, 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 win performance. But he didn't come in and say, pedal faster, pedal five times faster, that'll fix it. Of course it would, but you can't achieve it. What he did is looked at all of the small things that he could adjust and made those levers you describe, I usually say dials, but he, he, he tweaked each of them marginally and the compounding of those created a world-class gold-winning performance because you can't just say pedal faster reps, you know, go pedal five times faster. Well, if I could do that, I'd do it. It's not that easy. That's exactly right. Well, with that, we're going to wrap up our podcast today and want to thank you for this insight. This was such a solid conversation and so many great nuggets and I hope the listeners go back and listen to this two or three times and take some notes because there were huge takeaways in the last 25 minutes so Ian thank you for joining us today how would you like for people to connect with you thanks Mary thanks for your time and, and for any, anyone that listens yeah you can reach me on ianmoyce.co.uk and ianmoyce.cloud they will point straight to my social profiles there's a little bit of personal branding as well you can do easily Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode of the Photo Pressure Podcast.